So uh, welcome to Faith Covenant Church. Uh, thanks for being with us today in person. Thanks for being with us online. If we have met, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And uh, we are in the midst of a series on the book of Esther. And so today I'm going to serve as your tour guide through this next section of this story. But before we um, jump into that, we want to take a minute and pray. And so just want to invite you to pray with me if you would, please. Father, just uh, this morning, as, um, as we find ourselves in the midst of Black History Month, Father, we just want um, to pray for communities and for individuals who still feel the impact of racism from past and from present on their lives. Father, we want to pray for healing. Father, just as a nation, we pray for discernment to see where racism is still alive and well and an issue and for courage to stand against that. Father, as a nation, we want to pray for discernment to see where racism is not and to stand against unfounded accusations that only compound pain and promote division. Father, help us to celebrate the rich and significant history and contributions of African Americans in the past and in the present. Fathers, we spend time looking at Esther today and see a story of genocide and long-standing enmity where race plays a part in that. I pray that you would open our eyes to truth, to see how it is relevant to our lives today. Give us hearts to hear from you, eyes to see in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the, the, the book of Esther is really just that. It is a book, and it very much reads like a novel, where, where one chapter builds on the next, and on the next, and on the next. And so uh, e each week we've been building on what we've been talking about from previous weeks. And so to really appreciate where we are at today, uh, you, you kind of need an understanding of where we've been. Uh, you can always go back uh, on the website, the Facebook page, the YouTube page, and, and watch the previous weeks. But if you're joining us for the first time today, really quickly, let me summarize where we have been so far. So, uh, week one, we saw uh, uh, the Persian monarch Xerxes uh, just in a drunken rage divorce his wife because she wouldn't do what he said. And, you know, we talked about men here in our congregation who have disobedient wives and we commiserated with them and, and we, you know, brought up Michael McKenzie and it just, it was, it was, it was a very touching time for us. So, uh, that was week one, all right? Um, week two, we then find Xerxes with another problem. Xerxes um, is lonely now, and he's regretting that he divorced Vashti. And so his, his brain trust of brilliant men come up with a solution for him. It was the Miss Persia contest. And he basically had young virgins from all over the country brought to him, and he bedded them one at a time each night 
And then he chose the one he liked best in the bedroom to be his next wife. Now, as all of this just broken sick stuff is happening there in Persia, you have, among other Jews, but two Jews who are most relevant to our story, two Jews living in the capital in Susa, one named Mordecai, and the other is his adopted daughter, a young woman named Esther. And as Jews, we talked about how they were meant to be distinctive. They were meant to live lives that would point people to God. But instead, Mordecai and Esther camouflaged into the culture. They disguised, they compromised, they blended in, they complied. But rather than pointing people to God, they did everything they could to hide the fact that they were Jewish. Mordecai went so far as to forbid Esther to tell anybody about it. He's like, don't you blow our cover. Now, as chance would have it, Mordecai works in Persian politics for Xerxes. And as chance would have it, Esther wins the Miss Persia contest. So that's kind of where we left off last week. We're going to pick up this week at the end of Esther chapter 2 and and work our way through chapter 3 as well. And chapter 2 opens up with two of Xerxes' bodyguards, a guy named Big Thana and a guy named Teresh. And if you're looking for baby names, just can I recommend these two to you, right? You know, little baby Big Thana, little baby Teresh, right? So they, they're two of Xerxes' bodyguards. They're planning on killing him. And, and again, these two guys are eunuchs. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, you can, you know, slip your phone out and look it up on Google really quickly. You can quietly ask your neighbor. You're going to want this to be a quiet conversation when you get the answer to that question, Okay. But just for today, we will say a eunuch is a guy who used to be happy, and he's not anymore because somebody took something away from him, all right? And it's not his car keys, and he's not getting it back, all right? Um, and so the, these two guys, they, they, they are working for Xerxes, who incidentally was known. Historically, we know Xerxes brought large numbers of men into his service, made them eunuchs, had them serve in, in his court, and they were especially helpful for working in the harem that's full of lonely and, and neglected women. So they want to kill Xerxes. Now, why do they want to kill Xerxes? We're not told Exactly. Right? Maybe they're mad that the, the war with Greece is going poorly and everything they're promised you know, you know, through the war isn't coming. Maybe they just don't like Xerxes' politics. Maybe they're mad because Xerxes made them eunuchs. I mean, I'd, you know, I'd want to take somebody out for that myself, right? Whatever reason, they want Xerxes dead. Now, this is a real threat. Historically, we know, after the events that are described in the book of Esther, Xerxes is assassinated by his officials. So this is a real deal. Mordecai hears about it. Mordecai, he goes to Esther, tells Esther. Esther, in turn, goes to Xerxes, warns Xerxes, giving credit to Mordecai. Xerxes explores the whole thing, discovers that it's true, and he has those two executed. However, doesn't really do anything for Mordecai. Like, other than a notation in the Persian history books, that's all Mordecai gets. No reward, no thank you, no promotion, nothing like that. Which can seem kind of strange. Like, if, if sometime this week you were to discover an assassination plot, you know, like somebody's you know, putting together against the president and you were to expose that whole thing, chances are 
the president would personally thank you. You'd get some kind of an award. You know, even, even among people who don't like the president's politics, they would see what you did as heroic. Xerxes does nothing like that for Mordecai. Footnote in Persian history, that's it. Now, somebody does get promoted. But instead of being Mordecai, who you would assume deserves to get promoted, instead, a guy named Haman gets promoted. Now, when I said Haman, the room did not erupt with boos and hisses. All right? If we were good Jews reading this story at our Purim celebration, that's what we would do. You try and drown out his name. It's, you know, he who, not, who should not be named is Haman, right? And the reason for that is Haman is the villain in our story. And if you've been with us the last couple weekends, you'd be like, well, I thought Xerxes was the bad guy. Xerxes is a bad guy. It's just, we're going to see this today in the, in the weeks to come. Haman is even worse. Now, why would Xerxes promote a guy like Haman? We're not sure. Maybe Haman got into his head. Xerxes, you, you have got to do something. Your wife won't do what you say. You are losing the war with Persia. The, the guys who are supposed to be protecting you are trying to kill you. You need somebody to like, get things under control. You need an enforcer. I'm your man. I can rein this all in. Maybe Xerxes, just based on what he knew of Haman's personality, thought those things. Whichever way, he promotes Haman, and this is a massive promotion. Haman is second in command in all of Persia. Nobody's higher on the organizational chart than him than Xerxes. And if you remember, the Persians thought Xerxes to be divine. Haman is one step below what it means to be a god. So when Haman would walk through the king's gate at the citadel, which is kind of like walking across the Senate floor in D.C., all the other political officials, they would bow down to Haman like they would Xerxes. All but one. We're told that Mordecai would not kneel down, or pay honor to Haman. Everybody else is on their face in front of Haman. And Mordecai just stands there. Kind of reminds me of a, an album cover from way back in the day. Uh, Keith Green, No Compromise. Now to remember this album, you need to be an old fart. Okay. Came out 70s, you know, vinyl, when, you know, before you know, vinyl went away and then came back as something cool. Uh, but, you, you, you know, you got this guy in the front who's looking back, like, what's all the commotion? You got the guy standing, you got the guy next to him who's like, dude, you need, get down here. Don't you know what this guy's capable of? This is where Mordecai's at. All of a sudden, he's like, I don't care. I am not bowing down. And when his, when his co-workers ask him, they're like, what, what's the deal? Why won't you bow down for Haman? Mordecai tells them, I'm not going to bow down because I'm a Jew. So wait, what? I thought this was a secret. I thought Mordecai, I thought we were keeping that on the DL. 
You you, you forbid Esther to tell anybody. All of a sudden, you're not bowing down and you are publicly telling people you're a Jew? What's the deal with that? And when Haman finds out, he's more, I mean, like the guy in in, in the album here, he's ticked. Haman goes ballistic. He's like, I'm killing Mordecai. I'm killing his family. I'm killing every Jew in Persia. This would be like you'd disrespect me here on a Sunday morning out in the lobby at church. And my response is I'm going to kill you. I'm going to eat your children. And I'm going to slaughter everybody in the country who shares your nationality. Now, if we have that interaction, right, you're probably going to think, I need to find a new church. Okay? <laughs> That's a psychopath on staff there. Yeah? But you're not going to lose sleep over that. Because I can't do those things, you know? Haman is second in command in all of Persia. He is thought of as one step below a god. He can do this. Now, all of this should cause us to ask ourselves two questions. First question is, what's the deal with Mordecai? Why, Why all of a sudden does he become a man of courage and conviction? Up until now, it's been disguise and compromise and blend in and comply. And now he's like, I'm a Jew and I ain't bowing for nothing. Why all of a sudden does Mordecai like grow a spine? And then why does Haman go crazy? Like sure, Mordecai disses you, fine, kill him. But you're going to kill him and you're going to kill every Jew in the known world? What is the deal with that? Now, I would contend the answer to both of those questions is found in the history of the Jewish people and God's promises through them. So, Bible nerds, right? This is your moment, right? Because for the next few minutes, we're going we're, we're gonna to dive into some history and theology. And if you're not a Bible nerd, hang in there with me anyway, because it's going to answer these two questions. And it's going to help some things in the rest of the, the chapter and through the rest of the book make more sense. So here we go. All right, got to think a little bit. Take a hit of coffee, whatever you got to do. Concentrate. Going way back to Genesis, a guy named Abraham. God comes to Abraham, and for no apparent reason other than God just unconditionally loved Abraham, says to Abraham, hey, I'm going to do some things for you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I am going to make you and your descendants into a great nation. I am going to give them a land that they will live in where they will show the rest of the world what it looks like to be my people. And through your seed, I am going to bless all nations. Through your seed, I am going to bless all of humanity. Now, if you study the Old Testament, it becomes increasingly clear that the seed that God is going to bless all, through, all humanity through is that what God has in mind there is the Messiah, who is going to come and redeem all of humanity from their sin. So you've got Abraham, the the, the covenant passes from Abraham to Isaac, it passes from Isaac to Jacob. Jacob has his 12 sons. They go down to Israel. They They go down to Egypt. They spend hundreds of years there. And at the end of roughly 400 years, they have grown into a great nation. And as the book of Exodus opens up, 
They are leaving Egypt and they are heading for the geographic area known as Israel, the promised land that God said to them, hey, I'm going to put you here and this is where you're going to be my people. Now, as they make their way towards the promised land, right there in Exodus 17, they are attacked without provocation by another nation and their very existence as a people is threatened. See, here's the thing. If you're going to study the history of the Jews, one of the things you should get used to is genocide attempts made on them as a people because their history is just full of them. And, and you, should, you would do well to realize that at least in part, those genocide attempts are driven by dark spiritual forces. The Bible teaches us not only that there is a God in heaven who is intent on bringing redemption to humanity, but it also teaches us that there is a devil in hell who is intent on destroying all of humanity. Dark spiritual forces realize if they can wipe out the Jews as a people, then they can eliminate the promises that God has made through them. Dark spiritual forces have figured out, hey, if we can eliminate the Jews before the Messiah is born, there is no Jesus who will lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice for all of humanity and make forgiveness possible for you and me. So again, the Jews are they're making their way out of Egypt. They're on the road in the wilderness to the promised land, and they are incredibly vulnerable. They've just started as a people. They're having supply issues. They're having leadership issues. They're wrestling with whether or not they can trust God. They're attacked, and they've got no kind of background, no kind of experience in warfare. They've been slaves for the last 400 years. You want to challenge them to a brick-making contest? It's on, right? They can hold their own there, but they don't know nothing about nothing when it comes to warfare. So they're attacked by this other nation that seems to have no reason to attack them other than being motivated by the forces of darkness to commit genocide against them. And the nation that attacks them is a nation known as the Amalekites. Everybody say this together. Amalekites. That's going to be important. Remember that. So Amalekites attack them, and here's how it goes down. Exodus 17, they're on the road in the wilderness to the promised land. The Amalekites attack from behind. And at first what they do is they cut down all the stragglers that are straggling behind the main column of people. They mercilessly eliminate the old, the weak, the sick, and the young. And then rather than come head on against the rest of the main column, they attack them from behind as well. Now, if you know Exodus 17, you know God delivers his people miraculously. But then after doing so, he pronounces judgment on the Amalekites for what they did and how they tried to do it. You can read about it in Exodus 17, you can read about it in Deuteronomy 25. And basically God says, okay, after what you just did and after how you tried to do it, I am going to eliminate you as a people. As soon as the Jews have been established as a nation, they are going to serve as my hand of judgment and wrath against the Amalekites. It's coming. Now, fast forward 1 Samuel 15. The Jews are living in Israel. The borders are established. As a people, they are established. And they have a king appointed for the first time. A guy named Saul, who is a Benjaminite, who is the son of Kish. 
And God says to Saul, okay, we pronounced judgment in the past. You're going to execute it right here in the present. You're going to go to war against the Amalekites. You are going to wipe them out completely. No plunder, no prisoners of war. Everything goes. Saul goes to war, but he does not follow directions. He and the army save the best of the plunder for themselves, and they spare Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Everybody say, Agag. It should sound like you're coughing up a fur ball. Agag, right? All right. So, back to Esther. Why in the world does Mordecai all of a sudden get all this courage and stand up? Why in the world does Haman just go nuclear about it? You go back to Esther chapter 2. We are told of Mordecai that he's a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, and that he is a descendant of Kish. He is a relative of Saul. And then you go to chapter 3, and we're told of Haman that he is an Agagite. He is a descendant of Agag. He is, an, he is related to the ancient Amalekites. See, I would contend Mordecai doesn't bow down. Because he sees Haman the Agagite and he is told, you bow down to this guy. And he says, no way. This guy is representative of the individuals who tried to commit genocide against my people. The, the first group in a long line of folks who have who've lined up to wipe my people out. I am not bowing down to that guy. Something snaps inside of Mordecai, he's like, I'm not doing it. Uh, up until now, it's been disguised, it's been compromised, it's been comply, but he gets to this point where he's like, I am not bowing down to that guy. No more. No more. He, he has this moment where there's an awakening. And all of a sudden, he identifies himself with God's people, he acknowledges that publicly, and he decides, here I stop hiding, here I take my stand, no compromise. No more compromise. And Haman, he sees Mordecai, the Jew, the Benjaminite, the relative of Kish. He sees somebody where the blood feud runs hundreds and hundreds of years deep. And he decides, you know what? I'm picking up where my people left off in Exodus 17, and I'm going to wipe out this Jew, and I'm going to wipe out every single Jew in the known world before I get done. And so Haman goes to Xerxes, because he can do that, because he's second in command of the whole country. And he says to Xerxes, he says, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples and the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Now, good degree of truth to that. But then he goes on, he says, their customs are different from all other people. Now he's entered into the realm of exaggeration. He goes on, he says, 
and they do not obey the king's laws. Now, now we're just into downright deception. Then he's going to try a little scare tactic. He says, we don't see this in politics today, but he says, he says it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. What do we do? Well, Haman's got a solution. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. There's your genocide. And then Haman offers Xerxes what historians tell us is the equivalent to 10 to 20 million dollars for the Persian treasury if Xerxes will let him do this. The plan is very simple. I'm going to go throughout the country. We're going to kill every Jew we can find. We're going to take their stuff and I will pad your bank account that's hurting after you're losing this war with the Greeks. And so without even knowing who these people are, with, with, without even asking what race he's going to wipe out from the face of the, of the known world, we're told that Xerxes says, do with these people as you please. And so like that, Xerxes goes from being the guy who endorsed state-sponsored human trafficking to now being the guy who endorses state-sponsored genocide as well. And so they write up the decree, Xerxes seals it, sends it out, goes all over the country, and when they get done, we're told that Xerxes and Haman sat down to have a drink. Because if Xerxes is good for anything, it's a party. Now, as Esther 3 comes to a close, it does so by doing three things. It does so by offering us encouragement. It does so by challenging us with a point. And it does so by leaving us with a question. So we'll start with the encouragement. And the encouragement is, is, is found in Mordecai in his response. See, again, Mordecai in chapter 3, all of a sudden he reaches this point where he's like, I'm done. No more disguising, no more compromising, no more hiding, no more complying. Here I take my stand. I'm not going to hide any longer. No more compromise. And, and I would contend that this is encouraging. Again, when you think about who Mordecai was just a chapter previous. Here is this man who, who could have gone back to Israel, who should have gone back to Israel, and he chose to stay in Persia. Here's a guy who's rocking you know, a, a, a name after a Babylonian god. Here's a guy who works in Persian politics for Xerxes. Here's a guy who, who's done everything he could to blend in. He looks Persian, he dresses Persian, he talks Persian, he even acts Persian. He's forbidden Esther to tell anybody different. And when he has an opportunity to stand between Esther and harm, he does nothing to protect his daughter from what's going to be abuse. And yet, in chapter 3, we watch Mordecai transform. And his story, his story is there to remind us, to encourage us. That if a guy is cowardly and compromised as Mordecai, 
if that kind of guy can be changed into a person of courage and conviction, then we can too. See, Mordecai's story is there to remind us, no matter how we have assimilated into the culture that surrounds us, no matter how we have sacrificed our morals in an attempt to blend in, no matter how hard we have worked to hide our relationship with God, it is never too late to change. It is never too late to identify ourselves with God's people and to take a stand publicly. It is never too late for us to come to the place where we go, you know what, enough. No, no more hiding, no more, no, no more of this, this, this camouflage. Here I take my stand, no more compromise. Mordecai's story reminds us it doesn't matter what we've done, no matter, no matter where we've been, no matter what's been done to us, no matter what we've failed to do, it is never too late to come to a place where we take a stand and where we are transformed by God. But as encouraging as Mordecai's story is, there is a point that chapter 3 makes that's challenging. And the point is, is very simply this. A life of no compromise will always come at a cost. For Mordecai, he takes a stand. And it looks like it's going to cost him his life. And it looks like it's going to come at the expense of the lives of an estimated 15 million Jews living throughout the Persian Empire. Mordecai takes a stand, but it's going to come at a cost. And see, here's the thing. Today, next weekend, for the remainder of this series, we're going to push. If you haven't already gotten there, What's it going to take for you to come to a place where you make a stand? If you're not there already, what is it going to take to bring you to the place where you go, you know what, enough. No more hiding. Here I take my stand. I am done with the compromise. Today, next weekend, and weeks to come. We're asking, if you haven't already done that, what's it going to take to bring you to that moment? But we would be negligent to challenge you in that way and not warn you. You take a stand, it's going to come at a cost. See, the Jesus we are invited to follow He does not invite us into a life that is sheltered from hardship. He's not inviting us into a life that's protected from pain. He's not inviting us into a life that's safe from tragedy. To follow Jesus is not for the weak of constitution. Jesus is one who has endured all of those things already. And he invites us to follow him And he simply promises to walk the road of pain and hardship and tragedy with us. We live in a world that is increasingly hostile to a biblical worldview. If you take a stand, it is only a matter of time before you will be ridiculed, before someone will seek to cancel you, before someone will seek to destroy you. 
For example, a few years back, Sojourn Church in, in Louisville, they bought a, a, an old elementary school that wasn't being used anymore. They converted part of it into a church. They converted part of it into an arts venue. Now, on the arts venue side, they had, you know, different studios where you could display art, where you could, you know, do your paintings, your sculptures. You know, they had uh, um, places where you could lay down tracks, record music. And they had a concert venue where they had all kinds of bands that would come and play. Most of them were not Christian bands. Now, the church in no way promoted its theology in the arts venue. That's not what it was there for. They simply wanted to provide an artistic outlet for the community. However... When a local reporter found out what the church's stance was on marriage and human sexuality, that reporter went on a crusade to shut the arts venue down. And after years of persistent, well-organized attacks on the arts venue, on their sponsors, on anybody that dared play there, they shut the thing down. The message was very simple. If you have the audacity to think about marriage or human sexuality differently than we do, we are going to shut your doors. And not only did the activists shut down the arts venue, but they sought to close down the small businesses of anybody who simply attended that church. Or take David Layden. David and his undercover journalism exposed a host of different illegal activities on Planned Parenthood's part. Activities like using taxpayer dollars to fund research on human body parts that were harvested from born alive babies. Activities like illegal partial birth abortions. Activities like illegal trafficking in human body parts. When David exposed that, Planned Parenthood and their allies, they went after David. They raided his home, they confiscated his property, they put a gag order on his videos, and they hit him with all kinds of lawsuits and prosecution. It was designed to bankrupt him, to imprison him, and to shut him up. Again, the message was simple. You think you're going to keep us from making money hand over fist off of the lives of the unborn? Buddy, we have access to some of the most powerful politicians and some of the most influential law firms in the entire country. We will destroy you. Now, we take a stand. Is the cost going to be quite as dramatic for us? Probably not. But if you take a stand, it will come at a cost. It is simply how this works. Which then leads to our question. Then why in the world would I take a stand for God? Why would, why would I put a bullseye on my chest? Have people shooting at me? Wouldn't it be easier to just camouflage and compromise? Wouldn't it make more sense to just blend in and comply? Why, am I, why take a stand for God? That's crazy. And yet I would contend that there are some very compelling reasons for why we would take a stand for God even knowing that a life of no compromise will come at a cost. And so next weekend, we're going to talk about just that. It's like, come on, show up at church next weekend. I want to hear it. 
See, next weekend, we're going to watch as Mordecai challenges Esther to take a stand, knowing that it could cost her. And we're going to watch Mordecai give Esther and you and me compelling reasons for why we would do so, even knowing it's going to take, it's going to take things. It's going to come at a cost. So I want to, I want to invite you. Make sure you're here next weekend in person, online, because we're going to watch this drama continue to unfold. And we're going to see why we would take a stand for God, even though folks will come after us for doing so. Let's pray. Father, just as, as we think about Mordecai, we think about the change that we see in him from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Father, just as we hear this call, this challenge, to come to a place where if we haven't yet, we say enough. No more hiding. Here I take my stand. No more compromise. Father, some of us, cost or not, we know this is our time. So we just want to lay down our lives at your feet. We want to identify ourselves with your people. We want to commit ourselves to publicly standing up for you. God, give us wisdom. Give us strength. Give us courage. That no matter what comes, that we would stand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.